Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a Tennessee school board last week voted to remove the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel Mouse from an eighth-grade course on the Holocaust, the latest in a string of recent book bans. Other frequent targets have included All Boys Aren't Blue, Gender Queer, and The Bluest Eye. The challenges and bans, which the American Library Association has called unprecedented in number, have been initiated by parents, school boards, even governors, who've called for investigating and prosecuting school officials and librarians. We look at why book bans have been spreading across the country with speed and intensity after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A mayor in Mississippi is withholding funds from its public library until it removes books with LGBTQ characters from the shelves. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has called for investigations and prosecutions for, quote, pornographic school material, while Texas State Representative Matt Krause has told districts to identify books for removal that might make students feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. These calls for book bans by politicians and parents prompted writer Viet Thanh Nguyen to write a New York Times opinion piece last week. Nguyen is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Sympathizer and its sequel, The Committed. He joins us now. Welcome to Forum, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Hi, Monica. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, and it's Mina, actually. Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. So your New York Times essay is titled... My young mind was disturbed by a book. It changed my life. What was this book? Uh, it was a novel titled Close Quarters by the American novelist Larry Heineman, and I encountered it in the San Jose Public Library when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And it's a novel about the Vietnam War, and I was very curious about the war because I'm, I was a Vietnamese refugee. And uh, in reading the book, I was very, I was quite shocked and dismayed because what happens in the book is that American soldiers kill a lot of Vietnamese people, and in, in the climax, they gang rape a Vietnamese woman. And I thought, wow, this is how we Vietnamese people are seen by Americans. It's very upsetting to me. And I, I hated the novel, and I hated Larry Heineman for, for many decades. Uh, but what happened was that I reread the novel as an adult, as a writer, and I realized that Heineman was right because what Heineman wanted to show was how war brutalized civilians, but how war also turned nice American boys into remorseless killers and rapists. And he didn't want to give readers like me a way out by editorializing or sentimentalizing or humanizing the Vietnamese because that was not how 
American soldiers saw us. And he just wanted readers to confront their own discomfort. And eventually I had to. And despite what an basically horrifying impression that book left on you as a young person, it sounds like you're really glad that, well, as you write in your piece, that you didn't complain to the library or petition to have librarians take the book off the shelves, nor did your parents. Why was it important for you to make that point? I think it's important because I'm an, as a parent right now, you know, I also think about what my son is reading and what he's encountering and what he's dealing with. And of course, as, as a parent, I want to protect him and be there for him for difficult moments. But I also realize that part of growing up for everybody is that there, there will always be moments where we encounter things without guidance or help uh, from our parents or from other guardians. And that's a part of maturing and learning how to deal with things. And, you know, when it comes to things like books, I can't imagine much more of a safer space than books for encountering hard lessons. It's, it's much easier than encountering hard lessons on the playground, for example. And so I, I, I did not, at the time, it didn't even occur to me that I could complain. And even if I could complain, I don't think I would have done it because I understood that, you know, part of the joy of, of books was learning things, learning yes. new things, which could be uncomfortable. Um, and because I was left to deal with it on my own, I did figure it out. It, that, that was far from the only book that <laughs> made me question things and disturb me <laughs> in various ways. And sure. For better or for worse, it turned me into a writer. So maybe <laughs> the adults out there don't want their children to become writers. I mean, it's a legitimate point. Yes. You, you have talked about, though, how books are inseparable from ideas, and that's what it's, what's at stake. What do you see as the impact of removing books, banning books? Well, the impact, I think, is precisely to prevent the discussion or even acknowledgement of certain kinds of ideas. And, of course, the reason why that's problematic is that in a democratic society, in a society with a strong civil society, we should be having discussions about ideas of all different kinds, uh, from the provocative and interesting to the difficult. And again, that's how children learn. And of course, they learn by looking at what uh, their parents and adults are, are modeling. And they're not stupid. I mean, they're, they have iPhones. So I'm sure they've heard about book banning and about these books in particular and what's being modeled to them. What's being modeled to them is that adults say we shouldn't even be talking about certain kinds of things. That's a bad model to present. Um, and if the adults in question are uh, having serious concerns about certain kinds of ideas or texts or books and so on. I think it's legitimate to have those concerns, but the response should be, especially on the part of a school board, to have things like a public forum, a public discussion and so on, and model a, a, a way of having dialogue for the children and the students. Mm. What do you think uh, are some of the motivations that are driving these recent challenges to books and calls to ban books. One of the lines in your piece that I was really struck by is you talked about how it seems that people are seeing a danger in empathy. And I was really struck by that. I think that's in part possibly a motivation, but definitely also an impact. Can you explain that? Sure. I mean, I think there's various motivations for banning books or banning ideas or preventing certain words from being spoken. And it comes from all points of the ideological spectrum. But in this particular case, uh, especially around the question of empathy, 
And with this, with books like Mouse, for example, I mean, part of the reason why these books are so powerful is that they're beautiful artistically, but they're also very seductive in terms of their storytelling abilities. And part of the seduction from a powerful story is that a story gets us to empathize with the characters in a story. Therefore, we see the world from their their eyes. We see history from their eyes. And, you know, for for this particular group of parents or this this school board, I think the danger of empathy in, in, in this case is that they may not want their children to see the world from these particular eyes that, for example, Art Spiegelman is uh, is working through mm. in, in mouth. Because if their children did see the world through the eyes of Jewish characters or black characters or queer characters and so on, uh, they may be sympathetic or empathetic to the plights of these particular types of characters and therefore the people in the real world and if the parents or or politicians are opposed to these groups of people they have a vested interest in not wanting their children to empathize or to be open to the to their experience to these people's experiences and of course it's related to the politics of the country as a whole you know it's quite obvious that we're a divided country and we're divided to various around various kinds of political and social issues the tr- the country is undergoing uh, tremendous change both now but in the last several decades as well as different groups uh, such as Jewish Americans or queer people, LGBTQ people have asserted their histories and their identities. And there are some people out there who don't want to hear about these identities or don't want to acknowledge uh, these particular groups, histories and experiences. And they know that empathy is a key battleground for how to prevent, how to, how to, how to both open up society in a certain way, but also how to prevent society from opening up. Yes. It's an interesting point by the same token as you're describing how it can help us um, find empathy and relate to characters and uh, expand our ability to to love and appreciate others that, you know, when you are targeting a book for being banned, the message can also be that you, you don't have to understand this person or walk in their shoes. You can dismiss their experience as well, which I think is part of what you're getting at here in terms of the danger. I just want to say that, you know, I grew up, uh, I'm, uh, as I said, I'm Vietnamese refugee, Vietnamese American, Asian American, person of color. I grew up going to the library and reading almost wholly books about white Americans. And I didn't question that. You know, I, I live in the United States, but it gave me tremendous empathy for white people. I think I know a lot about white people from reading all these books. So it's, it's, it's to, to me, that, that was sort of, you know, the nature of Americanization. Um, but in other words, that we who are newcomers or we who are considered different by whoever in American society are always being forced to empathize with whoever the dominant population happens to be. And so, of course, I, I, I think that there is a resistance to empathy in the reverse direction. You know, people who have not never been forced to empathize with people who are different from them, you know, they resist that, that, uh, that urge. Um, and of course, honestly, I resent that resistance, given that I've been required to empathize with the dominant classes uh, my entire life. Can I ask you how you handle problematic or racist work at home with your own kids, as you've been talking about how you think about it a lot in terms of what you present your own children or what you allow them to look at and how? Well, I I think what's important to acknowledge here is that, for example, I have an eight-year-old son. I'm not bringing home Mein Kampf 
to him. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so in other words, when we say the word something like racist, for example, or sexist, it's a broad brush. Uh, and I think that in a lot of circumstances, it's very difficult to say of a book, for example, that is utterly and wholly racist or utterly and wholly sexist and so on. And in fact, a lot of works are probably very complex in terms of, of, of what it is that they present. So the example I talked about in the essay for the New York Times was Tintin, the comic book series from the Belgian artist Hergé, which I'd read when I was a child in the San Jose Public Library. I love the books. They're, they're beautiful. They're very compelling to read. I introduced my son to them, and he loves them too. Uh, and of course, rereading them as an adult, I realized, well, there are, uh, Urge was a product of his times. The books are replete with racist and colonialist images, but those images do not say everything about his work. Like I said, their books are riveting in terms of storytelling, and they still are. So instead of telling my son, oh, we should not read these books because of these particular kinds of images, I tell him, look, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed them. I enjoy them too, but I think we should at least notice how Chinese, Native Americans, Black Africans are being depicted here and why this might be problematic. And and what I want them to, to know is that these images have existed historically and they still exist today. So, for example, I bring him to France uh, quite often. The Native American representations in Hergé from the 1950s are still there in France. Mm -hmm. The depictions of Black Africans, which are really atrocious, are still being seen in parts of Europe and are not being questioned. He's going to see those images on his own eventually. I'm glad that we've had this discussion now so that when he does see them, he knows how to make sense out of them. Yeah, I really liked your point that you do try to put it into context, but that you also try to make sure that he has access to other stories about people that Hergé has misrepresented, which I think is a really important point. We're talking with Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of The Sympathizer, which won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. He's also a professor of English, American Studies and Ethnicity and Comparative Literature at USC. We're talking about the recent wave of book bans, a trend which the American Library Association has called unprecedented. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Has a book you grew up reading been banned? What's your reaction to that? Curious also how you deal with difficult or problematic books as a parent or a teacher. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. The battle over books is heating up, and that's what we're talking about. 
This hour on Forum, I'm Mina Kim, and we're talking with Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of The Sympathizer, professor of English, American Studies, and Ethnicity, and Comparative Literature at USC. Nguyen wrote the recent New York Times op-ed, My Young Mind Was Disturbed by a Book, It Changed My Life. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Has a book you grew up reading been banned? What was your reaction to that? What are your thoughts or questions about this recent wave of book bans? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. I want to bring into the conversation now Elizabeth Harris, a reporter for the New York Times. Harris covers books and publishing for the newspaper. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So could you put in context for us the scope of mm-hmm of these book bans across the country. You've reported that they're at a pace not seen in decades. Who or what is driving these book challenges and bans, this pace? Sure. So, I mean, you know, book challenges are really, uh, you know, a, a regular feature of school board meetings. They come from the left, they come from the right, they come from a lot of people who don't see this as, you know, a political or partisan issue at all. Um, and, you know, they've been around for, for a very long time. But, you know, the increase and the politicalization that's happening right now does does feel really different to people who, um, who track these sorts of things. I mean, there's, um, as you mentioned at the top of your show, I mean, some state governors are making an issue of this in Texas and South Carolina, in Virginia. It was um, uh, it was part of the, gov- the race for governor. It appeared in campaign ads. Um, so sort of that level of attention on it um, is really is is mm-hmm. different. There is also um, it's appearing in state state legislatures. Um, there's some some legislation that have been introduced in different parts of the country. There's a bill in Oklahoma that um, would uh, essentially uh, ban. Let me make sure I get this right. Uh, it would prohibit public school libraries from keeping books uh, that focus on sexual activity, sexual identity, or gender identity um, in the library. Um, and, you know, that that's new. And, you know, another another piece of this is sort of traditionally we think of this as an issue where someone, you know, kind of watches, you know, sees their kid bring home a book that they personally find objectionable, and then they kind of bring it to the school or the district and it, you know, kind of unrolls from there. But a big part of what's happening now is parents are seeing um, lists circulating on social media of like Google Docs and spreadsheets of books um, that people consider, some people consider to be problematic. And they might have quotes pulled, um, you know, kind of one paragraph of a 200 page book pulled out that people um, find objectionable or like one or two squares of a graphic novel. Um, and so one mm. one thing that that leads to is that, you know, some kind of a, a certain number of books are being um, challenged all over the country. So there's um, uh, let's see, what is it? There's um all boys aren't blue has been targeted for removal in at least 14 states. And so again, that's been on a lot of those lists that have been circulated. And some of them are by parent groups. Um, Some of them are by activist organizations like no left turn in education, um, which, you know, have, have um, a a particular agenda um, and that kind of thing. So those are, those are sort of how it's changed now. Yeah. What you're describing really sounds like a, a coordinated effort with a strong political apparatus backing it up. I know that two groups have been mentioned at kind of the forefront of these attacks, Moms for Liberty and No Left Turn in Education, who you also noted as well in your piece. Can you tell us about them? 
So Moms for Liberty um, is, it's, there's sort of an umbrella organization and then lots of local chapters around the country. And um, I spoke to sort of the, um, one of the founders of the umbrella group, and she was saying that they don't, um, they don't distribute lists themselves, um, but but the local chapters do. And I saw a number of those lists. Um, and uh, what she was saying is, you know, their concern is, you know, kind of two twofold. They don't want parents to be attacked for um, for asking if books are appropriate for their children. And then their sort of their main the main theme that she sort of articulated to me was a concern about sort of sexuality, basically, and books about sexuality and parents. Um, you know, that either things that some parents don't think is appropriate for their children at all, or might only be appropriate in a sex ed class, for example, just being on the shelf in the library. And for um, Moms for Liberty and for a lot of um, Republican politicians as well, this issue is being framed as a parent's rights issue. And every parent has the right to direct the upbringing of their own child. Um, And so this is, you know, parents should be making these decisions as opposed to schools. And then on the other side, people are sort of saying like, you know, no, I would like educators and librarians to be making decisions about kind of curating a, 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 a you know, a collection of books that reflects the entire community um, and, and that kind of thing. School libraries, though, they already have mechanisms in place, right, to stop individual students from checking out books that parents disapprove of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in um, a lot of places you can sort of, if you really don't want your child reading about, you know, I don't know, witchcraft, whatever it is, you know, you can, uh, you can sort of give a list to the local library and the kid can't check it out. So yeah, that does exist. Yeah, this sounds like it goes beyond. And then also what's been really striking is, is the effort among some of these politicians, governors, lawmakers, as you describe efforts that have gone as far as bringing or trying to bring criminal charges against librarians, educators. Can you talk about that a little bit? So there have been some complaints that have been brought to sheriff's offices, basically, and they then get referred to local prosecutors who have to decide whether or not to charge anybody. Um, In one case, in Wyoming, um, this happened with library employees. And in Florida, it actually happened with a book itself. Um, And, you know, when I spoke to uh, free, free speech advocates and lawyers, they weren't concerned that these sorts of charges were going to stick. You know, it's an incredible long shot. Um, but you know, when I spoke to librarians and um, and sort of you know kind of groups that supply librarians and things like that, um, they were sort of saying that it doesn't really matter ultimately if these are incredible long shots as charges, right? Because if you live in a community and suddenly you are publicly accused of peddling pornography to children, like you know, that in itself is sort of punishment enough and also just sort of the specter of having to maybe defend against charges of maybe having to hire a lawyer is very frightening for people. So, you know, the, you know, in some people see this as as just primarily an intimidation tactic mm. and possibly an effective one. But it sounds like it's already having an impact, as you say. Uh, well, we've got some calls coming in. Let me go to Lisa in San Francisco. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So, um, what I'm wondering is, is uh, maybe some of these bans are actually having an ironically opposite effect. I remember as a child, my mother tried to ban me from reading Mad Magazine, for instance, and all I did is I just went over to my neighbor's house and read it there. And um, I noticed that Mouse has skyrocketed now to the best sellers list on Amazon. Mm. And it seems to me... <laughs> 
I mean, I'm very much against these bans. I'm very pro-First Amendment. But it seems to me it may have, ironically, the opposite effect of bringing way more attention as being a disapproved piece of literature. And, you know, a lot of kids, you know, especially middle schoolers and high schoolers, Mm. they kind of like to do the opposite of what the authorities are trying to (laughs) impose on them. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I I, I do see what you mean. Let let me see if Elizabeth is also seeing the same thing. I know you need to leave us, Elizabeth, but have you been seeing that it's having that effect? You know, it really depends. Like there are some books that that's true for like Mouse is a, is a big book, right? And and people have heard of it and they, you know, can go on Amazon and immediately go find it. Um, but for this, you know, this doesn't tend to, individual books don't tend to get big headlines about them, right? So, you know, Mouse gets banned and people are going to go buy it. But, you know, most of the books this happens to, um, you know, aren't, aren't books everyone's heard of and they're mm-hmm. not going to get, you know, they're not going to lead CNN or whatever, you know, it, it kind of whatever level of the attention mouse got. So you know, I would say that that it does happen and it can happen, but I don't think that's a, uh, I don't think that's a common occurrence necessarily, but I would actually be curious to hear what your other guests think about that. They might know more than me. <laughs> yeah. Don Nguyen, have you heard that as well in terms of just the impact of these bands, sometimes just making them even more um, enticing <laughs> in the well, public? Course, mind? I don't have a quantitative sense of this, <laughs> but, but of course, uh, typically the the book bands uh, bring attention to the most famous works that we have, like Mouse, like Fahrenheit 451, like Beloved. Those books don't need additional <laughs> sales encouragement. Um, so I, I I think it might be accurate, you know, because, for example, the list in Texas is about 800 850 books. Yes. I don't imagine the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of those books are seeing a major boost uh, in sales that would just reflect the nature of the book industry in general. Oh. Um, so there's probably for the mid-list author and so on, or, or for um, you know non-popular books, it's probably more of a detriment than a, than a boon. Yeah, the lower profile books really can get hurt by this. We're talking with Viet Thanh Nguyen and also Elizabeth Harris, a reporter for the New York Times. Thanks so much for talking with us, Elizabeth. Really appreciate you giving us some context here. Thank you. I'd like to bring into the conversation now, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. Suzanne, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So people have noted that the last time they saw book bands with a very high degree of intensity, Um, was in the 1980s, you have said that these are not the challenges of your, can you talk about what you've noticed about these challenges and how they're different? Sure. I mean, some of the points we've touched on, but I think that the main thing to understand is these are not spontaneous outpourings from concerned parents in particular communities. This is part of a systemic effort. It's not the red scare, but here at Pen America, we're calling it the ed scare because it is a spate of maneuvers, including more than 120 bills that have been introduced in state houses across the country to ban certain material from schoolroom and even higher education curricula. These are materials that deal with issues of race, racial justice, how uh, slavery is taught, in courses on American history. And so it's a a frontal assault on the freedom to think. And these book bans have sort of hit a nerve where I think those who are trying to pull back on the consequences of demographic change in this country and the rise of a more 
progressive and understanding approach to racial and ethnic differences, the embrace of different narratives, uh, people being able to see themselves as fully American, uh, regardless of background, there is a, a potent backlash that has been mobilized against this. And we see it in uh, the efforts to curtail voting rights. We see it in these curriculum bans and we see it in book bans. That's an issue, you know, it doesn't hit the pocketbook, it hits the book bag. So it's very personal for parents and communities across the country. And I think those who are trying to orchestrate this backlash have sort of seized on it because uh, it hits so close to home. So when you say it's a response to demographic shifts, you mean that the content of the books that you're seeing really targeted for banning at this point are books that center basically marginalized groups? I mean, overwhelmingly, that's the case. You know, the mouse incident got so much attention because it's so venerated uh, and for good reason. But the overwhelming bulk of the books that are being targeted in these bands are books by and about authors and characters of color or LGBTQ, uh, transgender in some cases. So books that kind of reflect this evolution in our demographic that bring forward stories that have not been told, identities that haven't been fully recognized or embraced. And there's you know, a second related piece, which are narratives that are more critical about American society, that talk more about the role of slavery. And a lot of this was energized by the pushback against the New York Times 1619 project and its effort to elevate the place of slavery throughout American history and through the present day. And some historians dispute it vigorously but the idea that that should be banned, and that was the, the sort of subject matter of a lot of the initial curriculum bans that we saw introduced in state houses last year, uh, you know, that that narrative has to be su suppressed, that that account of American history, if it is credited, is going to run counter to the belief systems, the political power that is held by a certain group. Well, Paul writes, someone needs to remind these, quote, conservatives that they're against cancel culture and censorship. And if they're truly in favor of, quote, freedom, they should not be denying the right to read to those parents who want their kids to do so. If they want to tell their own kids to avoid some titles, they should do so and let other parents make their own decisions. Let me go to caller Colin in San Francisco. Hi, Colin. Good morning. Um I disapprove of book bans, but I also feel that Mouse is actually not age-appropriate material for school children, and particularly um, the way that the graphic novel Jews are portrayed as mice, the Germans as cats, and then the Polish characters are all portrayed as pigs. And to me, you know, I think that dehumanizes a whole class of people and also ignores that, yes, you know, there were... Um, Polish people who persecuted Jews during the Second World War, and then there were also others who, you know, sheltered Jews at the risk of their own lives. And mm. I don't think school children have the context to understand. Um, yeah, you know, the, the what a complicated time that was, and to. Yeah, you know, in a cartoon format to just portray a whole, you know, nationality as uh, a species of animal. Um, Colin, do you, you mind know, if I, I not to put you on the spot? Yeah, I, I'm just curious. 
if if you think the book should be banned from school library shelves and school curriculum like actually banned um I don't feel that it's appropriate for children at even at the perhaps at the level of sixth grade and higher. You know, it could be it uh, it could be accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of other dark stuff in the in the, in the graphic novel too, like um, you know, su- um, mass suicide. That I feel that you know, for school children, that's really um, difficult uh, thing to process. Thanks, Colin. Viet Tunman, do you have a reaction to what Colin is saying as well, just as a parent of a school-aged child? Uh, the ban, I believe, with Mouse was in eighth-grade curriculum but in Tennessee. Eighth-grade eighth curriculum. Well, that would be, what, about 13, possibly 14 years old. Honestly, I, <laughs> I think children at that age are really capable of dealing with a lot. I may not be the best example of this. Like I said, I became a writer because of my exposure to things that I probably shouldn't have been reading, uh, according to some parents at that age. But I read some difficult things at that age, not just uh, Larry Hyneman's Close Quarters, but for example, I read Voltaire's Candide when I was around that age. I read All Quiet on the Western Front. I don't think that um, being exposed to these kinds of things is irreparable, irreparably damaging to uh, to children. And again, I think that what's really happening is parents are afraid of having the conversations with their children. Uh, why, in this case with Mouse, for example, does the artist decide to use animals to represent uh, particular kinds of peoples? That's a great question to have. And I think that a 13 or 14-year-old uh child or student, young person, would have an incredible conversation with their parents or with their peers exactly around that kind of issue. And then all kinds of magical things can unfold at that point around the question of, of both history, but also around the question of art and artistic decisions. So I'm actually in strong disagreement with, <laughs> with our caller on this one. Well, Tony writes, I imagine that now Mouse has been banned. Every eighth grader will find a way to read it. We're talking with Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of The Sympathizer Professor at USC in English and Comparative Literature. Also, Suzanne Nossels with the CEO of PEN America. And after the break, we'll actually meet an author who has written a book that was recently banned. So stay with us for that. We're talking about book bans that are sweeping the country at the moment um, with great with great intensity and learning more about the origins and motivations. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the recent wave of book bans, a trend which the American Library Association has called unprecedented. You, our listeners, are with us, giving us your questions, your reactions. If there's a book that you were reading that's been banned, what's been your reaction to that? Uh, what are your thoughts or questions about what's going on with regard to books in this country and what larger issues that it's trying to address? 866-733-6786 is the number to join the conversation. 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram is where you can post thoughts online at KQED Forum. You can email us forum at kqed.org. And joining me now is Ashley Hope Perez, an author and writer of the book Out of Darkness. It's a young adult novel that's been banned by a Texas school district and placed on lists of books to be banned. Uh, Hope, Ashley Hope Perez is also an associate professor of comparative literature at Ohio State University and a former high school English teacher. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. First, can, can you tell us what your book is about, Out of Darkness? Yeah, Out of Darkness is a historical novel that uh, tells the story of a young woman, a young Latina from San Antonio and a Black American boy um, in East Texas. And it's a love story that takes the 1937 New London school explosion as kind of a backdrop. So it it certainly delves into challenging themes that readers are kind of put on notice of the minute they open the page um, the to the first page, which takes them to the aftermath of this explosion. So you're seeing, you know, the bodies of children um, right there at the start. And one of the reasons that I frame the book the way that I do is so that readers have a sense from the beginning of what the thematic intensity of it is. What have the attacks against the book then been like? What have they been saying about Out of Darkness? Uh, I mean, I've been I've been called a pedophile, a groomer, all the things. You know, I'm a I'm a um, survivor of um, sexual trauma, and so those those kinds of remarks are really hurtful. But yes. you know, at the end of the day, especially as a former teacher myself, I'm just aware of who this harms, and and it is you know I became an author of young adult fiction because of my students, and in large part because of how little representation there was for them in our high school library. So the, the notion that after the, this hard one <laughs> diversification of the stories that are available to young people being rolled back by parents who are not concerned about what their own child is reading, but actually want to restrict what other kids are reading and more importantly, want to signal who's in control and whose stories matter. And I think that what affects me most about these attacks, aside from the ugly messages and phone calls that I get, is simply the harm that they do to the people who should be at the center of decision-making in schools, and that's the students. How did you find out your book was banned? Well, the wonderful Pen America folks let me know about the first ban, and it has since been banned in, uh, gosh, six or seven places and put on review and many, many other places. So it, now it's almost a, an ordinary thing to open my email and see, for example, this morning it was removed in um, Georgia in a school district. So I just take on the news and 
do my thing of trying to signal what parents who want young people to have access to diverse literature can do. Um, but I do want to say, speak just briefly, if I could, to the point earlier about, you know, the notion that, well, young people can find these books, maybe it makes them more enticing. And the fact is that for some students, the school library is the point of access to books. I had students when I was teaching in Houston, Texas, who worked 30 hours outside of the outside of the school day, who were caregivers, who were parents, and they were not some kids didn't have bus fare to the public library and the school library was the place for them. So that school library needs to have the books that meet their needs. I'm going to go to some calls that were coming in. Um, inspired by what you're saying, Ashley, Nira in Berkeley. Thanks for calling. What would you like to share? Uh, hi, uh, thanks for uh, uh, bringing up this discussion um, uh, on KQED. So I'm a children's author. Uh, I write picture books for children, young children. And I had a picture book called Between Two Worlds, The uh, Art and Life of Amrita Shergill um, come out last year in fall. And the book is a biography, uh, the life story of a very underappreciated artist, uh, a biracial artist, Amrita Shergill. Uh, and uh, it was sad to see that uh, one day uh, my editor uh, actually emailed me saying that uh, an organization that collaborates uh, and curates with uh, uh, school libraries decided to drop a huge purchase of uh, uh, copies of her book because uh, some of the librarians were afraid of parent backlash uh, for uh, in response to uh, an image in uh, one of the spreads in the picture book, mm. uh, which shows uh, the, uh, which depicts a naked woman. Um, so we were, I was really surprised. I'm like, where is the naked woman in the book? I don't even know. And I was like, cluster in the beginning. And then I realized it, the, the, the image that they were talking about is actually um, uh, a, a cave painting, a second century uh, cave painting uh, of the Ajanta and Elora caves uh, in India that uh, was a huge inspiration for the artist. So there's a spread that shows the artist wandering around the caves and how uh, that inspired her uh, future paintings. And, and I just wanted to bring this up and say that technically my book was not banned, but just how the close-mindedness and ignorance of gatekeepers and adults are coming in the way of children learning about this phenomenal uh, early 20th century artist. So, well, uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Thank sorry you. that happened to you, Niran. Thanks for sharing your experience. With regard to children, Kate writes, in all the articles and conversations about the current rash of book bannings, there is a glaring omission, the voices of the students. I wish we could hear from the middle and high school students in the communities where these uninformed adults are making these decisions, especially the queer students and the students of color whose identities are being targeted and suppressed. Also, shout out to San Jose Public Libraries, like Mr. Wynn, that's where I did some of my most formative and radical childhood reading. Vietan, when you said you noticed that your son noticed these book pans as well, what has his reaction been to that or his questions and concerns around it? Oh, no, actually, my son has not noticed. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant uh, people are opening social media and reading it, but maybe it's not your child. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on student voices as a professor. 
Oh, I think the student voices are are absolutely critical. And again, I think so many parents underestimate their the the students. I mean, I work with college age populations, but you know, there's parallel issues here where students will come, you know, sometimes talk to me about the things that they can't talk about with their parents for for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're living in an age where parents are some parents and some politicians are freaking out about what's in the library, for example, and yet they allow their children to do to have iPhones or whatever. And and uh, I'm much more worried about what my son has access to on on the iPad that I give him access to for 30 minutes a day. So I'm, you know, that so there is a reason to curate and to be to be concerned. But I don't think books are the most dangerous types of media that our children have access to. So again, it goes back to the question of moral panic. It goes to the question of scapegoating certain kinds of things as an excuse for dealing with other kinds of social, political, personal issues. And it's again, I think it's a telling sign that it's books in particular that are being targeted versus other kinds of media. Mm. Ashley Hope Harris, have you heard from students, as you were mentioning earlier, for some, the school library is their only point of access? Oh, absolutely. And yes, I mean, I've had the privilege of being on, you know, speaking with some students and uh, coordinating with some band book clubs. I mean, students are livid, right? This is such a patronizing and frankly, insulting (laughs) stance to take. And I, you know, I think that uh, the message I hear from students over and over is that this is, this is what our lives contain, challenge, difficulty. This is not something that we're only going to encounter in the pages of books. And I think that uh, what students want are spaces to grapple with difficult issues, not spaces where they're denied access to those difficult issues. And I think if, uh, you know, another message I hear from students is that they would like to see these parents rather than being distressed about a book that depicts racism, be distressed about racism out in the world and do something about that. And I think that that's, you know, really a core, a core problem, you know, in these attacks on books is that the parents are reacting to the books in the ways that we wish they would react to those problems in the world, sexual abuse, rape, you know, all the kinds of forms of harm that uh, young adult authors and other authors strive to grapple with as the human experiences that they are and Suzanne, also, you have been hearing about students mobilizing um, against these book bans, right? Yes, we've been working with students. We held a teach-in in December to equip students to push back. We've got resources on our website to enable students to make the arguments. And they're some of the most effective spokespeople in York, Pennsylvania. It was really the students who got a very comprehensive ban turned around through their activism. And this is a real opportunity. The rising generation, you know, sometimes is very skeptical of principles of free speech. They see it as a smokescreen for hatred. They're very concerned about, rightly, about bigotry and bias and stereotyping and free speech. Sometimes seems like it, it just protects all of that. And so I think this issue is can galvanize uh, the new generation. We do free speech institutes for young people to teach them about what's at stake. Even if you might agree with the ban of a certain book, say, you know, like a caller, you don't think uh, Alex Spiegelman's mouse is appropriate for a seventh grade curriculum, but what's gonna be banned next? And who's got the power to decide? And do we want politicians and school boards overriding the judgment of teachers and librarians about what should be 
on the shelf. And so this is a real opportunity, I think, to engage a rising generation about the stake that they have in free discourse, freedom of thought, and a free society. We're talking with Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America, Vietan Nguyen, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, the sympathizer Elizabeth Harris has joined us earlier. Was a reporter for the New York is a reporter for the New York Times. Covers books and publishing for the newspaper. Ashley Hope Perez is with us, author of Out of Darkness, a young adult novel that has been banned and is on a list of books to be banned in different states across the country. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to a few more calls. Ian in Santa Cruz, join us. Hi, Ian. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Thank you so much. So um, I just want to uh, support what Susan just said about, you know, a free society. I grew up in South Africa under apartheid. And I remember when the police came to my parents' home to look for books. We weren't allowed to read. When I was 17, I I bought a a James Baldwin book. And uh, they they searched my suitcase at the airport because I'd been in uh, Zimbabwe in those days, Rhodesia, and I was strip searched and they found this book and it was, you know, I didn't go to prison because I was white and because my parents knew people, but that was the society we grew up in. And that's the society that we are embracing when we start down this path of banning books, because banning books is just the beginning of the authoritarian repression and control. And I would submit that kids that are reading the newspaper or watching TV and seeing the, uh, you know, the George Floyd tape over and over again and listening to the ex-president talking about racist prosecutors who are people of color and all of that, you know, if you're going to ban books, they're being exposed to that. That is much worse. That's like listening to the speeches that were given by the dictators in the 1930s in Europe, and people were being exposed to that. So I think that the discourse that Susan is advocating, it's about time that we started getting more bold uh, in the society to prevent this kind of you know, indication of what can come and if, we, if we're not careful, we're going to land up where South Africa was in the 1960s. And it's a horrible place to be. Just, yeah, Ian, thank you for sharing that experience. Suzanne Nossel. Yeah, just to say, uh, I really appreciate that comment. Here at PEN America, we do a great deal of work on free expression issues around the world, pushing back against the repression of press freedom, uh, book bans, the arrests of writers and poets in countries across the the world. And so to see this, these trends in our own country and this sort of borrowing from the authoritarian playbook uh, that the caller speaks about is really disturbing. And, you know, tactics like in Virginia, the creation of a tip line urging parents to call a hotline and report on teachers and educators who may be Mm. Uh, pushing ideas that are considered suspect. You know, that's right out of the Stasi in Eastern East Germany uh, during the Cold War. And so, you know, for, I think for those, you know, particularly free speech has been an issue in this country that, you know, at its best incarnation has risen above 
politics. And there have been impassioned defenders of free speech on the left and on the right. And so this is something to me that we need to come together on. And even if, you know, there are people who think, well, you know, the censoriousness on the left has gone too far. And so, you know, we're justified by pushing back in these ways because they're trying to ram forward certain new ideas that we reject or kind of orthodox ideologies. But the, these measures, I think by any criteria, are just at odds with the freedom of thought and the First Amendment protections that we treasure. And so I think we've got to kind of wake up and, and see that and recognize where this could lead and uh, activate within communities to stop it now. Ashley, Hope Perez, do you have uh, ideas for strategies to stop this, stop this trend? I, I think um, really helping students organize whether and you know not be stopped from reading by these removals i've been working with teachers to find creative ways to make books that are being removed visible so you know they can't have the book in their classroom but um some art teachers have been making these miniature books that they can kind of make a display of and then students ask about them and and they can get information about where else they can find them i would love to see someone organize a way to connect people who want to donate money for books with students in the communities who are saying want a book that's been banned but can't get it another way so that you know that we can make those connections but i think that the student voices for example in school board meetings are incredibly powerful and effective and i hope that adults who care about their young people being prepared for the century that they actually live in um, will encourage them and uh, to to speak to speak about what these books mean to them and what their removal means to them because when Parents show up to school board meetings calling books that are about queer kids filth or books that are about um, black and Latinx kids um, garbage. They are signaling something to students who share those identities and they are signaling that they don't belong, hmm. that they're not welcome. And that is an incredibly painful message to hear from your neighbors. Mia Tanwin, last comment from you about the impact of this trend not being stopped or reversed soon in your mind. Well, I, I, I would add, you know, reinforce what Ashley said, that uh, students have a lot of power today, uh, young people especially. This is, not, uh, this is the age of digital media. They can organize uh, not just in person but online. Uh, so, for example, when I get requests from high school students saying, hey, we love your book, our class is reading it, will you come and talk to us? I say yes because I think it's an incredible opportunity to speak to young people as an author, and it's very easy to do on Zoom. So young people out there, you know, organize, you know, do Zoom events, Ask your favorite author, ask the author you're curious about to come and speak to you. Promise that you'll read their books. And I think you know, a lot of authors will respond. And this is, I think, if parents and school boards aren't willing to have the dialogues, the students themselves can initiate those dialogues. Hmm. Viet Tan Nguyen, Suzanne Nossel, Ashley Hope Perez, thanks to all of you for talking with us today about book bans. And thanks to our listeners for their thoughts and experiences. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.